You are listening to the Business Wilderness, the voice of entrepreneurs. Welcome to the Business Wilderness. My name is Ahmed El and today I have a very special guest with me, Miss Patricia Reed. Patricia, how are you? I'm fine, Ahmed. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Patricia, take us back in time. Where did it all <laughs> begin for you and where are you currently at right now? So I have a very... Um, my background has been very varied, for lack of a better word. I've lived on four continents. I'm originally from Texas, but I moved to Belgium to marry my Belgian husband um, many years ago. And um, skipping through a lot of the other detail, I got my start in technology. It was a really interesting beginning. Um, I actually thought that I was going, I was grudgingly dragging my feet going to an interview to replace a secretary who was going to be on maternity leave for three months and so but it was at a cool company called cisco systems and a friend and my husband both said you got to go you got to go it's a great company this was in 98 right 99 and it was the go-go days and they said no you've got to go you got to go and i so i went grudgingly i did not want to be a secretary you know did not want to do this at all but i show up for the interview and the guy in front of me um we sit down and he looks at me and he goes, so you're here for the inside sales role. <laughs> and I looked at him and I looked down at his clipboard at the CV that he had in front of him. And it was my CV. And for one of the few moments in my life, I decided, Trish, just agree with the man and <laughs> don't correct him. And let's go. Let's go with this. And I said, yes. I'm here for the inside sales role. Wow! <laughs> and that's how I got my first role in technology. Um, so it was it was very unexpected, but the lesson that I learned from that was always be open to possibility. Right? You're never you're never spared from a, from good luck. <laughs> Absolutely, take your opportunities when they come. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So Cisco, and then where after Cisco? So I went. I spent nine years at Cisco. Um, I've always worked in services and consulting and doing business development in that area, which I love. Um, and then I moved over to Microsoft. I was their first um, cloud services salesperson for Asia. Um, did some very interesting stuff with them while I got my MBA with UCLA and NUS, the National University of Singapore. And then um, decided I wanted to try kind of a startup, more hustle type environment. So I did a a few private companies and startups. And um, most recently, I was with a SAS, sorry, software as a service type business. Um, That didn't work out. So currently, I'm looking for what's next for myself. But um, it's been an exciting journey. And one of the things that I say to anybody in technology is, boy, if you don't like change, don't get into technology. <laughs> so um, there's always something to learn. It's always evolving. It's it's a very interesting sector. So you spent nine years at, at, at Cisco in an inside sales role. 
How many? Well, inside, yeah. inside sales only actually lasted about a year and a half because I managed to hustle myself into a direct facing sales role. Um, and it was funny because they originally, when I was hired, I had last choice of the territory. And so they gave me Central and Eastern Europe because nobody else wanted it. And it turned it out, it turned out to be such a wonderful learning experience because I had everything from Poland and Slovakia and the Czech Republic all the way east to Kazakhstan. And um, I sold more, you know, my first job after that I was handling the partners, so I had over 100 Cisco partners in that region. Um, I was billing them, managing the relationship. I flew all over the place to, you know, I got to go to Moscow, and that's actually how I made the business case for me being able to do a direct-facing customer role because I managed to convert all of these Russian partners that we had that had up until then not wanted to convert service contract types. And I did a spreadsheet of their billing and showed them, uh, made the business case for them on the current service contract type that they were on, showing them what they were going to pay currently, and then showing them what they would pay in this new type of service services arrangement that Cisco had come up with and showed them with numbers why it made sense for them. And mind you, all the previous sales guys had told our management that, oh, they were never gonna convert, we were gonna have to do big discounts because they just weren't interested. And lo and behold, I went to Moscow and I converted every single one of our partners. There were like five or six of them. And I brought home POs literally for like $400,000 and more to buy out their old service contract and move to the new one. So it was a really exciting time. Amazing. my boss was just amazed and decided, okay, this chick knows how to sell. Let's get her into a <laughs> direct role rather than having her behind the scenes in the back office. So it was a lot of fun. Wow. It sounds like it was. And, and tell me a bit more about your time at, at Microsoft. So Microsoft was, um, Microsoft was a very different culture. And that was, I think, the first time that I realized that Culture was something that I really needed to pay attention to. Um, Maybe I was just naive, but I hadn't really realized the extent that Cisco really had a strong sales culture and strong culture around weekly forecasting and all that. When I joined Microsoft, Steve Ballmer was still the CEO. Um, It was shortly before he stepped down. And Microsoft's culture was very different. I had never considered it, but actually a huge chunk of their sales are actually done by their um, their uh, manufacturer business. So they sell, they do a partnership agreement with Lenovo or whoever, and they do historically did a lion's share of their sales. So they did not have a really strong culture of sales. I think that that's changed a lot today. But when I joined, and I was like, okay, what's my patch? What's my quota? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was kind of. Kind of like, whoa, what's, wait, settle down there. What are you doing? <laughs> so I had to, had to adapt to a, a different environment and um, a different culture rather quickly. Ah, awesome. So tell me more about the, the, the whole adapting and then uh, leading the way. And how, how did you embrace that change? So um, there were wonderful things about the culture that... Um, really gave me some new opportunities. I got to write my, I wrote a white paper for their CIO magazine. Um, the, uh, there was an opportunity to learn, 
you know, in technology, we talk about the stack of technology, right? And at Cisco, we were generally at the WAN and LAN layers. I mean, they had products in the other layers, but my goal was really to move up the stack towards applications where you had more user awareness. And, you know, moving from Cisco to Microsoft, one of the things that was really a, a wonderful thing was that the level of awareness that users had of the Microsoft brand and the Microsoft products. So whereas most users at an enterprise company wouldn't be aware of Cisco's gear in their environments, um, even though they might have heard of the brand before, they don't have Cisco's brand on their desktop unless they maybe they had a phone. But with Microsoft, it was very much a consumer-facing product, and customers had a very high level of awareness of it. And when I would go to meet with customers, everyone had an opinion. Um, this is just at the point where Microsoft was starting to shift towards cloud, and everybody at customers had an opinion about Microsoft strategy and about how fast are they moving or not moving towards cloud. And me being the first person within APJ to be doing services for Microsoft cloud, it was really an exciting um, transition period because there were lots of conversations happening internally about, well, how do we, how do we make this transition without um, killing our legacy business? How do we handle licenses? Do we license? Because Microsoft historically sold a license per user, but in a cloud-based environment, most cloud-based companies didn't do that. So how do we move away from one license per user towards a cloud-based environment where users often share licenses because they're not all logging on at the same time? How do we do that as a company without destroying our balance sheet or what we think are you know, our, our, our revenue possibility moving forward. So there were a lot of really interesting conversations happening within the business um, and considering the different possibilities for how we wanted to do that. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific period to, to see the, the, the transition of Microsoft from being very much an on-prem business towards you know, shifting its culture towards really being 100% bought into the value of cloud and today being really a leader in cloud and having you know, really shifted, I think, the culture that they have internally in their approach to customer value and how they partner with other organizations where historically they, they were potentially a little less um, open to doing that. Um, so yeah, it's been an exciting thing to watch. Wow, so from, from the look at things, you've been through a few um, tough transitions uh, you took you took uh, control of Europe and Eastern Europe when nobody wanted it under under Cisco <laughs> you went through the whole cloud transition with Microsoft tell I mean they are fairly different situations but tell us a bit about some of the lessons and uh, some of the challenges and obstacles that you, that you faced along the journey, starting with the whole, the whole Cisco journey? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's all, to me, it's all about launching businesses, right? Whether I'm working for a Cisco with a big brand and selling to partners, um, the business that I was launching was still really my, my own within that big company, my brand, my business, what, what value can I provide? And, you know, when Microsoft was beginning at cloud, you know, here, 
how do we launch that as a team? How do we launch Office 365? It was just brought online while I was in that role, and there were all these kinks in the product, and there were delays, and customers were unhappy because they were planning on it. So how do you create a sense of confidence while not overstating expectations around timelines and things? So to me, it's about not just customer transformation, which is really exciting to me, um, helping customers to see what's possible and how they can safely achieve whatever goals that they're setting for themselves um, and giving them ideas on how technology can help to drive that business transformation. But it's also about, as a technology company, how, do, how, do, how does our company transform? How do we continue as a technology business to be relevant every day? Um, you know, you look around and there's all these um, technology companies that are that are really um, a shadow of their former selves. HP. Um, there's there's a lot of companies that are are really having to transform themselves again and reinvigorate themselves. IBM. So it's, it's a sorry, yeah, IBM. IBM. All of these um, partners that I think. I, I mean, I'm sure that there are other reasons for it, but I think that with cloud. You know, integration is so much easier than it used to be. And enterprises don't need to have um, services on-prem like they used to. Um, so the, the value of services <clears throat> and the type of services that are being sold today are, have to be more and more sophisticated. You, p- enterprises don't need somebody to just de- deploy Microsoft Exchange anymore. Um, they need a partner that's going to help them you know, I want to um, get more uh, sales per, per interaction from my sales team, from my inside sales team. Um, how do I do that? How do I transform my digital marketing? The questions that customers are asking of services companies, whether it's a consulting firm or a vendor like Microsoft um, or Cisco, um, they're a lot more sophisticated. The expectations have, have increased dramatically, and I think that there's an opportunity for people that are willing to be, I don't know if you've heard of the expression, but a challenger sale, really a salesperson that is more of a consultant than a salesperson that's taken the time to research their customer before they go and meet with them and understand what is the CEO asking the CIO to achieve? Is the CIO terrified of their ability to achieve that between you and me that's absolutely possible even though the cio would never tell you that they might be just stumped at how they're going to achieve the goals and the kpis that that have been set for them by their ceo so when i show up with my with my awareness of the of the goals that have been set out for the organization that the ceo has set and I can come to the CIO and say, Mr. CIO, you know, I've looked at, you know, what your business's objectives are, and I've been looking at how could my company, based on our experience in your industry, you know, we've done this, this, and this with these other customers and provided these, these, and these results. I think that we could really do something together in this area to drive those initiatives for your CEO. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a good idea? Do you hate it? What, what do you think? Um, but showing up, not just pitching features and speeds and feeds, that drives people crazy. You know, it's funny because nobody likes a narcissist. 
right? Yeah. People that talk about themselves all the time and just care about their own interests. And yet as salespeople, so many salespeople do that all the time. Yeah. Listen about my latest feature. Listen about my latest this. Listen, me, 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 right? Me, my company, my agenda versus showing up and presenting, you know, here, this is why we should be talking. Here's why, why I'm talking with you. This is what I've done with other customers in your sector. Here's a few ideas of where I, how I think I could help you. But now tell me your thoughts on this. Do you think I'm an idiot? Do you think this is irrelevant? Do you think that this has relevance, but maybe you have a different direction that you would take this? You know, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And I think sometimes the hardest thing for salespeople is to, at that moment, shut your mouth. Do not speak. Ask a question and be quiet. Because even a customer that is reluctant to share, if faced with five to 10 seconds silence, they will start talking. It's not an easy thing to do, Um, but it is very important in order to demonstrate to your client that you're serious about listening to what it is that is on their mind. Okay, so did you come across many that were reluctant to talk or was it more of many were actually happy to talk and and voice their opinions at that moment? Um, I think it's a, it's a process, right? I think in a first meeting, understandably, some, some executives are reluctant to just, you know, open up and, you know, spill their guts about the challenges that they're facing. But what I find is if I already know the challenges that they're facing and I articulate those, even if it's at a high level, you know, oh, I saw in the news that, you know, such and such happened or... You know, I read your annual report and I saw that your CEO is expecting X, Y, and Z. You know, I think that that goes a long way to creating some credibility and um, willingness for them to share a bit of what, about what's going on for them. And everyone's different, right? Um, I think, you know, some some people are more willing to share with others. And, you know, it's just, it's it's our jobs to... Um, build that credibility, um, not by talking a lot. I, I, you know, a lot of times it's not about having the right answer. It's sometimes about having the right question, right? What is the question that's going to unlock this conversation? And also what's interesting is when I'm asked questions, questions reveal information, we all know this in, intrinsically. If a customer asks, how quickly can you get this done? That means that they want it done, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we need to train ourselves to listen to the underlying message when we're being asked questions. Because that's another way that people share information in a way that feels safe, right? If I, you know, if I ask you, how quickly can it be done? If I ask you, well, how, where have you done that elsewhere? All those questions are indicating interest and they're indicating my priorities. If I'm, indi- if I'm asking how long would it take you to do that, I might have a KPI that says I need to get that done as soon as possible. So I can answer that question and say, is there, is there pressure to get something like this done? Is there, is there something that's driving getting this done? Is there, 
you know, there might be other things that depend on getting this piece of work done so that other pieces of work can move forward. Yeah. So I remember it, it was really interesting. I, I once wrote a proposal, believe it or not, for Airbus for the A380. Um, they had um, redundant infrastructures on board for their um, for their 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 Wi-Fi and their analog systems because the entertainment systems at the time were all analog. So they had to lay duplicate wiring all over the the plane, and the weight was causing incredible problems. And when I met with the man that was the head of the onboard infrastructure, um, and he was sharing his concerns, um, onboard wiring was not the immediate concern, but there was a there was a greater concern around weight. So when he was asking, you know, what can we do around this, that weight concern drove, it, it had Im- an impact on other parts of the project that trickled down. So whatever project you're discussing with your customer, be aware that it's not necessarily an end in itself. It might give them the ability, the ability to implement other projects that are also going to drive value for the organization. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, so many people have difficulties getting the whole sales process right for SaaS businesses and so on, because uh, mm. it is quite it is quite quite a different process. It is, uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, so by through your experience, you've been through a few larger organizations, and you've seen the process happen time and time again. Um, what are some tips and advice you can give give these people? Because so it yeah, it's interesting because a SaaS business is fundamentally different from an on-prem business in a few ways. Yeah, and the biggest, the the, the highest level difference from from what I've come to understand is the fundamental difference in the distribution of risk. So in an on-prem business, historically, once a salesperson sold the project, the CapEx um, sale, they would get the order and they could basically leave and they got their money. Um, What's different with a SaaS business, which is, you know, the OPEX sale versus the CapEx sale, is that fundamentally the vendor has inherent risk even after the order is signed because there's risk that the customer is not successful where with a capex project okay you care but ultimately you care but you got your money anyway in the other scenario with a SaaS business if your customer is not successful they're not going to renew with you they're not going to adopt your software they're not going to grow the footprint of your software and Frankly, they have the alternative to go and shop elsewhere. So there's there's a fundamental difference in where the risk lies in the two different scenarios. And with a software as a service business, it's critical that leadership understands that there has to be an investment in the success of the customers. Um, and I've seen you know organizations that were tr- traditional on-prem organizations. Um, I remember I went into a meeting and it was a turnaround situation and there were no referenceable customers in this particular country and all of their customers were very unhappy. And one of the recurring themes that kept coming up with these customers 
is that none of them seemed to think that they were responsible for the administration of their environment, which sounds kind of like amateur hour. You know, how could they not know that? Well, when I started asking questions, what became clear was, they, you know, I said, well, it, where's their statement of work? What does their statement of work say around roles and responsibilities? Well, when we got out the statement of work, the standard template for this global statement of work for this for this SaaS product, there were no roles and responsibilities articulated anywhere in the statement of work. Wow. That was crazy. So how, I mean, we had no leg to stand on when we went back to the customer to say, you're responsible for this. It wasn't written in any legal agreement anywhere. So that meant, you know, you had a bun fight then between yourself and the customer to argue over, you know, who's responsible for the administration. And you want to upset a customer pretty quickly. You tell your customer, well, any idiot knows that, that a SaaS product is administered by, by themselves. They don't want to hear that. Yeah. As far as they're, they're concerned, it's the vendor's responsibility. So, you know, making sure your statement of work clearly articulates roles and responsibilities for both parties. The vendor, as the vendor, we are responsible for X, Y, Z, A, B, C. As the customer, you're responsible for A, administration of this product, B, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the clearer all that is laid out up ahead of time, and if I, even better, if you can put names or, or customer roles, you know, if it's Shirley, terrific. If it's the um, IT administrator, um, currently Shirley or whatever it is, even better so that it doesn't depend on a single person, but rather is attached to a role within your customer organization. Um, so that if ever there's evolution, they know who to go to. The other piece that I would mention that it's a huge risk for um, software as a service implementation is all around change management. You know, it's it's a big, um, it's a it's a real shift for a customer to go through changing softwares, particularly ones that touch a lot of their users. So having in place a clear change management role that's taking charge of not just sending emails to give a heads up to people, because we all know that people ignore emails, but you know, having a full change management function, including training, including user adoption uh, needs, um, and all the rest. So those are those are very important functions. Absolutely, because a lot of the times people are comfortable with what they have, then they worry about you know the whole changeover and how long it's going to take, where it's going to take, and so on and so on. It just adds more stress to their daily stress. <laughs> so. Oh, absolutely, and they can see it. You know, the, the, the other thing that I would mention is that it's critical that, that a customer be educated. You know, I, I feel like a lot of my job is educating my customer about the risks. I feel like it also builds a lot of credibility when I tell them, okay, I really want to do this together. However, we need to watch out for A, B, C, D, right? Customers respect that. Um, and they need to be aware that they need to be looking out for change management. They need to be aware of any number of things and taking them through all those things is going to build credibility um, for ourselves. And then what I was going to say, that was what I was going to say. Um, you know, moving from a custom implementation where the system was adapted 
to the internal organization's needs, a lot of customers went from manual processes to custom adapted processes in an on-prem environment. And now moving to the cloud, what they need to do is adopt the best practice processes that are already baked into a SaaS solution, right? Yeah. But a lot of the customers don't understand that. And what they ask a vendor to do is, oh, but we do that this way. Can you please do some custom workflows for us in your SaaS product so that we don't have to change our workflows to use your cloud product? No. If a customer tells you that, yeah. you should have alarm bells going off <laughs> all over the organization because that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. You wow. need to be educating your customer of, listen, Mr. Customer, custom workflows should be an absolute last ditch scenario. Um, the, the workflows that have been built into our SaaS product are um, best class scenarios. And part of the change management function is helping your organization to adapt, adopt, excuse me, better workflows that are built into the solution, which is the whole beauty of adopting a cloud product. Also, if you do too many custom workflows, you're going to kneecap your ability to upgrade your SaaS product and have the beauty of cloud in the first place, which is having all the automatic upgrades and all this stuff. You're gonna make it very difficult for your organization to maintain the latest software versions for fear of um, crushing some of your custom workflows that you might have implemented. Yeah, there, there goes the whole scaling process. It becomes much, much yeah. tougher. Yeah. And, and the whole business case. And by the way, if you do this, if you say yes to your customer, we'll do all those custom workflows for you because our services organization would be thrilled to get all that extra money or whatever the reason is or because you're just too naive. And then a year or two down the road, they can't make the upgrades that they wanted to, that they need to make because you agreed to do 80 custom workflows, you're going to have one very unhappy customer in front of you. So it's critical to have, you know, open and honest conversations with your client and make them aware of the, of the opportunity for cloud, but also the risks of taking an approach which doesn't force their op organization to optimize their workflows when they move into the cloud and take advantage of this move to improve their processes, not just transition their old manual processes from manual to on-prem and now into cloud. No, they are not getting the benefits of the cloud if they take that route. Absolutely. I, I could not agree anymore with you. Um, just quickly, back to sales. Nowadays, there's solutions, there's SaaS solutions for everything. Um, the space is very competitive. You, if you have a LinkedIn profile, you get hit up two, three, four, five times a week, some people, some people less, about some solution that they have for your business, so on, so on, so on. How, what advice do you have for these startup SaaS companies or even just, you know, Series A, Series B funding or more, more Series A, uh, looking to really accelerate their growth, get their business off the floor. What advice do you have for them to really stand there and di differentiate their whole approach in terms of sales? Because everybody's using LinkedIn, everybody's using Twitter, everybody's using all these multiple different social media channels, cold calling, emails, so on, right? 
So, so people yeah. are so used to that behavior and just ignoring it. How do you yeah. stand out? I love this question because I love doing this with companies and I've, I, yeah, I've been doing this for years myself and I've learned so much. So um, let me just use a little analogy. Let's say that all of your company's resources are encapsulated in a single match. You have a match, just one match. That's all your resources. And you want to light a candle. You don't want you don't want to light a candle. You want to light a thousand candles. And in front of you are a thousand candles. Now, anybody that's ever lit a candle before, what would they do? They would focus those resources on a single candle, yeah. right? Ensure that actually even before they light the candle, they're going to make sure that the match takes, right? They're going to protect the match. Yeah. They're going to get the match nice and nice and hot. Get, make sure it's lit. And then they're going to focus that flame on a single candle and they're going to light that one candle. They're not going to worry about the other 9,999. All of their attention is going to be focused on that single candle. Once that candle lights, then they might be able to use that match for a second candle. If not, the beauty of it is that they can light those 999 candles off that first candle or the second candle. But getting that first candle lit is your priority as a startup or a fledgling business. And so many people get this wrong. Even when they start with the right intentions, they, and it's, and it, it's so understandable. It's so tempting. I mean, it's like somebody comes to you with an opportunity who with a struggling business wants to say no, nobody. And yet it is critical to our success. Nobody would take that sing, single match and try to light a thousand candles with a single match. And yet, that's what we do with our resources in a startup all the time. So how, what does that look like when we're taking all of our resources from a single match and lighting a single candle? What does that look like in a fledgling business? What that looks like is taking a single success story. And let me give you an example of how I did this when I launched um, the advisory business for Cisco um, here in Singapore with the Fortune 100 companies. So we had a terrific story that was public around the London Stock Exchange. And we had worked with the London Stock Exchange to reduce their time per transaction from 20 milliseconds down to two milliseconds um, by reducing their latency on their trading platform. This meant that with the same pipes, they could get through about 10 times more quotes to customers and they made money per quote. So you can imagine getting 10 times more quotes down the same pipes. They were ecstatic, right? So when I moved to Singapore, I decided to take this story because it's really a story, right? A case study sounds dry and boring. A story is fun. Everybody (laughs) likes a great story. Everybody wants wants to hear a story. Yeah. Yeah. So I decided to take this story to every CIO of every trading platform at every bank in Singapore and Hong Kong. So you name the bank, I was figuring out who their CIO was, I was sending them an introduction that was very specific to a particular scenario, and let me tell you, there wasn't a bank in town 10 years ago that didn't have latency issues, right? So it was something that was was exciting and interesting for, for a CIO to hear about. Latency, oh yeah, I have latency issues. Nobody didn't have latency issues. And then once I had hit all of those customers, 
one of my colleagues pointed out to me, hey, Trish, did you know that um, oil and gas companies have tr commodities trading floors? I said, oh, my gosh, I hadn't even thought about that. So then next, Miss Trish was emailing every CIO of every oil and gas company in town and having conversation with them about latency on their trading platforms. So you see the similarity between lighting a single candle with my one match and taking a single story and taking it to very relevant people that are going to be interested in that story. I'm not taking it to pharmaceutical companies. I'm not taking it to education companies. I'm taking it to similar organizations with a story that's going to be compelling with about a customer that everyone is going to recognize and be interesting in, hear, in hearing about. And on top of that, I was even able to, if the customer was interested, have a conversation with the engineer in London that worked on that project with the London Stock Exchange. Talk with their engineers about how did he do that? Wow. You know, create some mind share there. So open some doors for some connections. You know, if, you, if, if I don't think that they're going to say yes to a sale to me immediately, maybe they would still appreciate the opportunity to speak with our engineer. I'd be happy to set up a 20-minute call with our engineer in London. Would that be of interest to you? So, you know, there's lots of opportunities beyond just getting the immediate sale. To me, it's much more interesting, you know, when one of those oil and gas companies that I spoke with, I took the story to them, and the CIO actually told me, you know, Patricia, I don't actually have any issue on my trading platform. The latency there is pretty good. He said, but I do have an issue over some satellite links in a very remote region, and it, the satellite links are really costly, and all of our research data of the ocean floor has to go up via satellite and then bounce over to the United States so that researchers there can crunch that data. And those links are very, very costly. And our process is so slow that it's slowing down our ability to crunch this data and ultimately be able to drill more quickly. Can you imagine the business case? This was millions of dollars of drilling opportunity that was being delayed from a simple satellite link that started, this conversation started about a conversation about latency. And this CIO heard latency and saw, ah, latency, oh yeah, that's, that's something, I have a problem in this area, maybe they could help me here. And so we did a project with them where we redid not only, um, we didn't only look at how could they improve the latency over those links, but we also looked at how could they improve the process that they were using so that they could only send the delta of the data versus emailing the entire file over the satellite links every time which sounds crazy, but that's what they were doing. And ultimately, we were able to provide a huge impact in their ability to accelerate the, um, the research of the ground floor of this ocean bed where they were wanting to drill. And it all started with a story about latency over a trading floor platform. So it's critical for a company to pick a story, pick a single story that's sexy, that's got great numbers attached to it, that you can take to customers in that particular sector. I'm not talking about other sectors. Pick a single sector. You don't have unlimited resources. And I would argue even MNCs, even the biggest country companies, don't have unlimited resources. Companies have limited resources. Focus those resources like your match, 
on a single candle, on a single type of opportunity. Land that, light that candle, and then grow. I'm not saying you can't light, light the end of their 999 candles. What I'm saying is you can't light them yet. Light that first candle, and then you can pursue the other areas. Right? Pa Patricia, I'm with you 100%, but sometimes the issue it's is hard. That, the issue is that first candle in the first story <laughs> so well, yeah if you you mean if you don't have a success already that you can yeah it went, if if you're a startup yeah. most of the times you're brand yeah. new yeah you, got, you don't have i understand so i've worked with startups before too um, yeah. and i launched a startup here and we didn't have any brand recognition we didn't have um, anything really, but um, what we did have was hustle, right? <laughs> and <laughs> I, I've got a lot of hustle in me, even at my age. <laughs> um, but just look at, okay, where do we think our solution, you know, if it's, a, if it's a Swiss Army knife of capabilities, that's great, but you can't just sell a Swiss Army knife. Yes, we can do that, we can do that, we can do that, we can do that. You need to, Take a look at a single customer. What is a problem that they're having? What is how? What can I do to solve that problem? And you know, solve a problem for your customer. Don't go to your customer trying to sell something. Go to your customer with, go go to someone with an understanding of the problem that they have, and then you can get, have the credibility to talk with them about how you think your solution will help them to solve that problem. But the spray and pray, you know, or show up and throw up, you know, there's a, there's a thousand different versions of it. That's you know, gone. if I can just send out enough, you know, spam enough people with enough, you know, um, generic messages, um, I'll eventually get there. No, I'm not saying that you can't reuse a message, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is have your message be specific to someone. Because if it's not specific to someone, it's not going to be useful to anyone. So make it specific to, you know, a CIO at a bank or, you know, whoever it might be. I don't care if it's the owner of a juice stand, right? If your solution is useful to that particular juice stand owner, then by God, have them know that when they receive your message. Have them understand that you've really taken the time to understand their problem, right? Versus just sending out a blanket email that's just another message that they need to delete and move through in their day. Yeah? Yeah. Per so pers it, personalization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Patricia, you've answered all my questions. You've been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you and your time. Uh, it's been an, an amazing interview, insightful, informative. It's been great. Uh, before I let you go, quickly, where can we find you on social media? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Patricia Reed, and I I'm not active on Twitter or anything. I'm, <laughs> but I'm very active on LinkedIn. Strictly and, business. <laughs> yes, strictly business, and. Um, People are welcome to reach out. I'm happy to um, to coach uh, startups and businesses and turnarounds. Um, those are all things that I really love. So feel free to reach out. I'm in Singapore, Patricia Reed. 
Awesome. Patricia, Reid, thank you very much for joining me on the Business Wilderness. Thank you so much, Ahmed.